is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. More fallout from that recording of racist remarks made by former L.A. City Councilwoman Nore Martinez. Acting Council President Mitch O'Farrell says tomorrow's council meeting has been canceled as Kevin DeLeon and Gil Cedillo refuse to resign. We'll go in-depth into whether the city can function if those two refuse to leave. The January 6th committee has taken the extraordinary step to subpoena former President Trump. We look into today's hearing and what happens next. And the former president could be in even more trouble when it comes to the classified documents investigation. Latest inflation numbers are out. No relief from that. But people who get Social Security checks will be seeing some more money. We'll look at this investigative report about Russia taking away Ukrainian kids, moving them to Russia, raising them as Russians. We'll talk about the length some people are going to to get a good night's sleep. And scientists are injecting human brain cells into baby rats. So we'll talk about first why and then uh, about what they hope to maybe learn. Yes, what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) We start with the uh, L.A. City Council canceling tomorrow's meeting. Paul Koretz is an L.A. City Councilman. Thanks for being with us. So we mentioned on the show yesterday in talking to one of our guests that by the two remaining council members who have not resigned, DeLeon and Cedillo not resigning, isn't in effect the, the city council paralyzed now and aren't they holding the city kind of hostage? Well, we're in a situation where there are so many angry people attending our council meetings that we literally haven't been able to hold them. Um, Yesterday, we were unable. We had the choice uh, to have the LAPD clear the room. Uh, We didn't take that choice and instead eventually uh, lost quorum. Um, I don't think our our meeting would have been any different tomorrow if we had held it. So we have to decide either not to hold meetings until the resignations happen or to find some alternative method, um, which, I mean, none of these are good choices, holding it on Zoom, uh, preparing to clear the audience so we can actually do our business, or just have people shouting over us and making it impossible for us to meet. Well, yeah, that, that first one, just not having any meetings probably isn't the option, right? But, but what if they do stay? I mean, what do you think should be done here? I don't think we we have options. It's not clear that we have any ability to remove them. Uh, in fact, it doesn't seem like we, we have that option. Um, and it doesn't seem like uh, folks are going to be any, any less outraged. So I think we just have to prevail on their good impulses and ask them to resign. And it's certainly difficult for someone to I recognize that they are ending their political career, but I think uh, the comments that were made and the comments that people were willing to listen to without pushing back um, in private certainly gave us a look into what people really were thinking and what they were saying when they believed they were among friends and the word wouldn't get out, and it certainly wasn't good. Have you had an opportunity, I'm curious, to talk uh, recently with either one, with uh, Mr. DeLeon or Mr. Cedillo? I, I haven't had that opportunity yet. Um, I, I Honestly, I was so angry when I heard about it. Um, I thought I would take some time to calm, calm down before I have those conversations. And I don't know if they'll want to talk to me either. I was one of the earliest folks to call for resignations. 
and they are all or were i don't know how they feel about me now uh, good friends um and well respected and with the uh, significant bodies of work and great legislation and uh, none of it justifies the the conversations that that we heard paul Koretz there la city councilman councilman thanks Right now, though, the January 6th committee has just voted to subpoena former President Trump to answer questions about the events of that day. This comes as the committee wraps up its final hearing before the uh, midterm elections or at least its final public hearing. So does Donald Trump show up and when? Gene Rossi is an attorney and former federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia. Gene, thanks for being with us. Um, I'm guessing, and this is just a wild guess, that Donald Trump is not going to show up to testify, and then this is going to end up at the doorstep of the Supreme Court. Oh, absolutely. He'll immediately file a motion to quash uh, the congressional subpoena. Uh, It'll get ruled on by the district court. It'll go to to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and then to the Supreme Court. So um, by that time, you'll probably have a Republican House of Representatives Uh, Maybe not, but likely. And uh, I think that subpoena is probably more symbolic than anything else. Yeah, I was going to say just um, at the outset of this, should we just kind of put that out there and and note that this is very unlikely that he's actually going to be talking to these these people? Yeah, I mean, that subpoena to President Trump is uh, probably uh, as invalid as trying to subpoena Vladimir Putin. (laughs) <laughs> so although it'd be interesting to see both of them appear before the committee i that, would guess <laughs> that, that would be entertaining <laughs> so, so that one live yeah. so to your point uh, gene uh, presuming that the house reverts to a republican control which the, the polls are indicating is is a high likelihood then this subpoena even if it's still outstanding becomes automatically moot Yes, it won't be enforced. They'll, the Republicans, and I predict they will take over the House at least, uh, they'll probably vote to uh, vitiate or negate that subpoena or just ignore it and not ask to be enforced uh, or withdraw any, any filing to enforce a subpoena. So it's symbolic. Uh, it's raising the stakes. But I think the, the greater thing here today is a couple of things that stand out from, from what I see. Um, They're essentially going to make criminal referrals uh, to the Department of Justice. And that also is symbolic uh, on the part of the House, uh, because I I really believe that the Department of Justice now, uh, given the Mar-a-Lago fracas, uh, they are now starting to look at whether uh, individuals, including the president, uh, should be investigated for sedition and uh, insurrection and other crimes relating to January 6th. Uh, That's the big takeaway I get from that. And their referrals is like the subpoena. It's probably just symbolic. But the DOJ, uh, it gives them more cover if the House committee recommends that they look into this. Was this done today as their, you know, if if this is the finale and they all kind of went down the line and talked and presented something different. So maybe this is their big finale. And they've got the report to write, of course. But but voting to have the subpoena, does this all just try and make it crystal clear for the audience out there that, OK, everything connects back to him. So we would like to talk to him, even if at the end of the day, we do not talk to him. Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, and the other thing that came out today that's very uh, surprise, uh, not not shocking, but a little bit surprising. 
that the, the Secret Service, as early as December 24th, the Secret Service was receiving tips that there was going to be violence, if not death, uh, on January 6th. And that really troubles me because that gets into the whole thing with the cell phones, the missing text messages. Um, viewing the evidence in a light most favorable to the Secret Service, they have uh, multiple eggs on their face. Uh, they look, they look uh, to be uh, the gang that could not shoot straight or uh, the gang that was uh, turning a blind eye to what was the obvious. Now, that, that's uh, the most favorable. What's the least favorable? Oh, the least favorable is this, that the head of the Secret Service detail to White House, who was really an appointee, a political appointee, and you should never mix political appointees uh, in, in a unit that guards the president. Uh, he was basically, um, you know, Donald Trump's uh, right-hand person, if you will. I forget his name, but he was deputy chief of staff. Um, there is no way, in the light most unfavorable to Donald Trump, there is no way, no way, he and the people around him, including Meadows, um, the deputy chief of staff, did not know that in the days leading up to January 6th, there were rumblings, and those rumblings included likely violence, and that likely violence could have been directed against Mike Pence. And the reason I say this is this. There was no call out to the soldiers, to the National Guard, to Department of Defense. Hey, on January 6th, you may have a few people surrounding the Capitol because there could be violence. They should have had 10,000 armed soldiers around the Capitol on January 6th, given what they knew 10 days before. And the last thing is this. And nobody's talking about it, not even the committee, but Gene Rossi is. The goal of Donald Trump was to get the vote to the House of Representatives, because if you look at the Constitution, if they can't resolve the electoral vote issue, if they can't resolve the electoral vote issue, the next step is it goes to the House of Representatives. But that, that's a crazy legal theory, but that's what they were thinking in the White House. Get it to the House because... It's one vote per state. And there were more Republican states than Dems. I think it was 26 to 24. And Trump would have been, uh, you know, elected or appointed president if it went to the House. Nobody's talking about that. But that was one of their theories, among many other crazy theories. Gene Rossi there, attorney, former federal prosecutor, Eastern District of uh, Virginia. Coming up, an investigative report finds Russia is tricking some Ukrainian orphans and other kids so that they can be raised as Russian. And baby rats, yeah, baby rats are being injected with human brain cells. We'll look into why. Right now, though, news reports say an employee at uh, former President Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago estate told the FBI about being directed by the former president to move boxes out of a basement storage room um, to Mar-a-Lago after Mr. Trump's legal team uh, received a subpoena for any of these classified documents uh, to move them around the resort there. Could there be a crime here? Jan Ronis, a criminal defense attorney, legal analyst with extensive experience working in the federal court system. Jan, thanks for being back with us. So, yeah, employee says, hey, they asked for these things, and then I was told to move some of these boxes, and maybe there's something like security footage floating around. Does that does that lead us to, like, hard evidence that they knew that there was stuff in these boxes and they were trying to conceal it? 
Well, I mean, it's certainly circumstantial evidence that he was doing so. I mean, look, if he wasn't told what he was moving, maybe he thought he was moving uh, Melania Trump's, you know, book collection or something. And, of course, that would serve as a defense. But, I mean, it could be certainly obstruction of justice, a mishandling of classified documents, uh, you know, conspiracy. There are certainly a lot of crimes that pop up if, you know, the knowledge of what he was moving is imputed to him, imputed to him, especially... Um, if this was after the subpoenas were served. I was going to say, if you can just briefly walk us through, what would prosecutors have to feel confident they can prove in order to bring criminal charges? Well, um, as we know, there were subpoenas served for the production of many of these documents, and there was some lengthy effort in trying to get uh, the president, the former president's compliance with those. And if um, after the services of the subpoena, on the president or whoever received the subpoena on his behalf, uh, this person that moved these boxes was aware of that and was told to do so to, to uh, obstruct, you know, the, the the Justice Department's request for those subpoenas. That certainly would constitute obstruction of justice, perhaps misuse of classified documents, things of that that nature. But you know, you're going to have to know that knowledge was 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 imputed to him um, somehow before you. You know, could you, you could actually convict him of these charges? So it, again, it depends on what he knew and when he knew it, and for what purpose did he move these documents? If in fact he did so, as as the early reports seem to indicate. No, well, there's another piece in here that says you know that Mr. Trump was was well aware of what was in some of these when when he said, "Hey, could could you move these?" So I mean, does that that brings us closer? If he knew, then you can't go through a box and and not see that things are marked top top secret if you actually went through the box. It's right there on well, the page. <laughs> I don't know what who, who this you know I don't know who the person was what his role was in the web maybe he was just a custodian uh, or janitor or something of that nature but if he was a high government official and the the boxes were marked as you're suggesting then obviously that raises a greater inference that in fact he knew what he was doing and was did it in an effort to obstruct justice or somehow circumvent the the subpoenas that were issued you know for the return of these things so there are a lot of criminal activity that it could be but we but again we have to make sure that this person was charged with knowledge before such time as you could start filing charges against him. Although, you know, we've asked this question a number of times uh, about many things related to Mr. Trump. Uh, if he were not Mr. Trump, based on what we know, would would a normal person, and I'm putting normal in quotes, would a normal person by now have been in deep trouble? Well, yes. I mean, listen, the... Uh, the Department of Justice is moving cautiously on this. This is all new territory, untread, untread ground. And when you're dealing with the activities of a former president, you want to make sure that that you are circumspect in every regard to the investigation and not precipitously, you know, put the, the president in the crosshairs of some criminal probe. So um, the normal person probably would have been submitted for a grand jury, if not charged, long long before. But the Department of Justice is moving slowly and cautiously for obvious reasons, because again, this is never the kinds of things we're witnessing have never occurred before in this country. So, yeah, but 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 let me just ask you something because it's always drummed into us, you know, from the time we were kids in school, that no one is above the law in this country and that there isn't a double system of justice for people in this country based on your power or your wealth. But I, I get it, what you're saying about how they're moving cautiously because he's a former president. But doesn't that then contradict what we're all taught from day one uh, when we get socialized into this country that no one is above the law, the law treats everyone equally? Well, yes, but the 
the wheels of justice move very slowly sometimes. And so the, this investigation, as complex as it is, seems to be moving at a relatively rapid uh, rate. But these criminal probes, particularly these federal probes, sometimes takes, uh, you know, months, if not years. And so, uh, you know, justice may be served someday, depending on what our definition of justice is. But it's not over with yet. He hasn't been charged. And if charged, he hasn't been convicted. And so we're going to have to wait and see, you know, what the course the investigation takes. And hopefully justice will prevail in the end. A lot of people will be happy and a lot of people will be unhappy. And so... The lesson that we're taught as youngsters is a valuable lesson, but in real life, sometimes it moves a lot more slowly. Um, and in fact, some people that otherwise should be charged with criminal activity aren't, and, and that just is the way the system sadly works. Jen Ronis, criminal defense attorney, legal analyst, a lot of experience in the uh, federal court system. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Latest inflation numbers are out, um, 8.2%. That's the rise from a year ago, where 0.4% um, higher in September compared to August, which was a double what a lot of economists expected. Now, the Social Security Administration has responded to the inflation problem by boosting monthly payments nearly 9%. They'll increase people's uh, payments by about $146 a month. Kristen Myers is editor-in-chief at TheBalance.com, which helps people with personal finances. Kristen, thanks for being with us. This is, for Social Security recipients, quite uh, an increase. I think it's the steepest in several decades, right? Yeah, actually, since 1981, when inflation, of course, was also running incredibly hot. Uh, and COLA, as it's as it's known, this cost of living adjustment was actually given an over 11% boost. So this is the largest increase that we have seen. And I think, again, it really just shows how much people are being impacted by inflation and really how hot it is running right now. Yeah, I mean, that uh, even that increase is going to be wiped out just by the basics, right? And we look at some of the figures when they say, okay, your average family for whatever it is these days, they're paying you like $500 more a month for just whatever they used to be buying. Like, they're not buying anything new. It's just the stuff that you always get, the groceries, the gas. Right. And and that's actually the stuff that's been the most hit by inflation. But the thing is, and we were looking at this actually over at The Balance, really how much people on a fixed income, how much people that were on Social Security were being impacted by inflation. And the reason is that if you are a, you know, a wage earner, you can go out and you can perhaps try to negotiate a salary raise or you can go and get a new job that will help you really, in a way, fight inflation. But when you're on a fixed income, you don't have that option or that ability at all. And what we actually found was that just buying basic necessities took up 70% of a Social Security paycheck compared to 60% from the year before. So every single Social Security paycheck that a recipient has been getting this entire year is now actually worth less. Um, and so this increase is going to help folks. It didn't help them this year, but it is definitely going to help them next year, especially if inflation starts to come down. They'll be able to at least have some money uh, that they can, might even be able to tuck aside, tuck to the side. Yeah, which uh, unfortunately leads again to the uh, the question about inflation, because you said if it comes down so far, it's not. Uh, and so the Fed's actions by raising interest rates thus far have not had the desired effect. So if this keeps up and the Fed keeps raising interest rates, then again, the consumer is going to suffer greatly. Well, right now, what we're seeing with inflation is that it's at least not continuing to go up. 
we were on a very much an upward trajectory and now we're almost on a plateau and hopefully what we're going to start seeing is this step downward inflation right now is starting to let off some steam um you know we were at 8.3% in august now we're at 8.2% in september of course that's a step down it's just not by much it's not as fast or as far as the federal reserve would want they have an inflation target of 2% so we are very much a, a far ways off. I will say, however, that if we do enter into a recession next year, we are definitely going to see that inflation number really come down. Should we, and we can put that in air quotes, I mean, given what they've done so far, should we have seen it starting to cool faster than it is right now? And is that triggering some more of the worry? You know, I think a lot of folks, and I'm sure I think even people at the Fed were thinking that their aggressive rate hike campaign was actually going to have a much bigger effect. But these are very strange and unusual economic times because of the pandemic, where people were at home, they were actually talking money to the side. There's a huge and a very strong labor market. A lot of workers um, or employers right now are still looking for workers. Household balance sheets, while they are starting to struggle a little bit more now, were fairly strong. Um, and so all of these things combined together has really made this really difficult economic picture that the central bank really has to kind of navigate right now. And so they are attempting to do everything to bring down inflation. They really only have two tools in their toolkit. Raising rates is really the biggest one that they have. And they have to do it while trying to avoid a recession. Incredibly, I, I, incredibly difficult. I, I presume that people in different parts of the country are feeling the sting of this in different ways, right? I mean, people in New York or L.A. or Chicago, uh, are they feeling it in a different way, the inflation, rising interest rates, than people in, say, uh, Ohio? Yeah, that's a, a very good question. I think that everyone is feeling inflation. I think it's just where you feel inflation the most is going to change depending on where you are. So if you are in somewhere like Phoenix, for example, housing there has absolutely, the cost of housing has absolutely skyrocketed. It's actually one of the hottest housing real estate or housing markets and real estate markets. If you are in a city like New York uh, where rent has jumped uh over 14%, you might be feeling it a little bit differently than someone in a different town where perhaps rent didn't go up that much, but groceries have. So everyone is feeling it. Where they're feeling it is definitely going to be different. Kristen Myers, editor-in-chief of TheBalance.com. An Associated Press investigation has found Russia is taking Ukrainian orphans and other kids and raising them as Russian. It found officials deported thousands of Ukrainian children to Russia or Russian-held territories without consent, lied to them that they were not wanted by their parents, and gave them Russian families and citizenship. With us now is Juscelino Kolaris, who is an international law expert at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Thanks for being with us. I, I would imagine if this is all true, that this would violate several different parts of international law. Am I right? Yes, you are. Uh, since uh, Nuremberg, uh, customary international law recognizes as uh, non-derogable. That means you cannot, you know, uh, you cannot consent, freely consent, uh, human rights uh, and uh, the rights against uh, inhumane acts such as genocide, uh, enslavement, rape, kidnapping, and unconsensual uh, human experimentation uh, when committed under the color of state authority uh, are recognized as, as, as crimes. Uh, 
And committed under the color of state authority basically means these are crimes committed in concert with the state. And this seems exactly to be what's going on in the uh, under uh, occupied Ukraine under Russian rule. They say these are kids, these are children without parents or guardians or children whose parents can't be uh, reached. So uh, they try to pass as humanitarians here by saying, by transferring these kids. But again, deporting Ukrainian children to Russia or Russia held territories without consent of their parents. Of course, children cannot give consent. And giving them Russian citizenship uh, are obviously acts of genocide uh, and kidnapping, uh, which are being committed in um, under the authority of the Russian state. So, yeah, and it's not something that happens. International, it is a, a war crime. Yeah, and it's not something that just happens like spur of the moment on the battlefield from from the way it's reported, right? These are thousands of kids. There are lists apparently drawn up of like suitable Russian families. They can take them and, and do like re-education things. Like, this is this seems like something that is very well thought out and planned out. Absolutely. And again, just just to be very clear, it is it constitutes genocide to kidnap a portion of the population of a country against its will. And of course, children cannot, by definition, consent. And so it's uh, uh, it's an act of genocide to transfer kids from one country, the occupied country to the occupying country. Uh, uh, This is plain, clear, you know, black letter uh, a crime against the law of nations. And uh, of course, when we at some point, hopefully, have uh, 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 an international uh, tribunal uh, against uh, Putin and the people who are enabling him to do this, this will be one of the charges. Do you think that's actually going to happen, though? Well, it it depends. It depends on how this uh, war ends. If it ends uh, and sooner in a compromise, then we're like less we're less likely to see that because Putin is obviously going to request uh, that he not be prosecuted. Then, uh, of course, uh, you know the Western and the Ukrainians and the Russians uh, countries they're, they're going to have to find some compromise, and you cannot basically get to compromise by basically saying no, no, we do not surrender the right to go after you later. Uh, of course, that, that's a non-starter. So if we get to uh, uh, some sort of, of, of negotiations and a negotiated way out of this war, then yes, uh, of course, if uh, Trump, uh, uh, sorry, if, if Putin is killed, then uh, then it becomes more, uh, uh, then it, it becomes a moot point as to uh, uh, Putin, but, uh, but not as to the people who enabled this under him. You know. All through this, I think people really start to lose hope. They're like, why do we have all these international laws? Why do we have these decrees if if they're not being followed? We have this issue, number one. But also, all through it, like, how many civilian targets with nothing military around it have been bombed? You know, theaters or or, or buildings where, where you can write on the place that says, uh, you know, these are just citizens. We're just trying to stay safe here. And then and then it gets bombed. So what is all that for if, if it can't stop anyone from doing this? Well, let's let's never allow uh, uh, good to be the enemy of, of perfect or, or perfect to be the enemy of good here. Uh, of course, contracts are broken in our society regularly all the time. And we don't say that contract law does not work. Most people honor their contracts. And oftentimes, uh, uh, international war criminals are brought to justice. Sometimes they're not. And uh, sometimes they evade justice because sometimes uh, they, they, they can evade justice either because they die off or uh, because 
uh, it's a condition of, of, of reaching a settlement. So it's, it's very much possible that if Russia is defeated, which is the third option, uh, defeat of Russia and basically a coup against Putin would, would be a way to bring him to justice. But just because international law is not always followed or is not always enforced, it doesn't mean that international law is not law. It is binding. His conduct is criminal. The fact that he's not being brought to justice, it's just like, uh, uh, you know, in a way, in a very different world, and forgive me for the comparison here, uh, the situation when somebody breaks a contract with you and you decide not to sue. Right. You may decide not to sue for a number of reasons, and there may be a number of reasons why he may not be brought to justice. Ideally, he would be brought to justice to justice. And because there are laws that actually criminalize this type of conduct, it is genocide to transfer populations from one country to another against their will. This is genocide uh, beyond even kidnapping especially for children, there's no doubt that he would be convicted if brought to justice. But the question is, what is the, the uh, uh, you know, at some point we're going to have to get to some sort of negotiations. If we get to negotiations, then that becomes, that may become a a a a, 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 a trade-off in a negotiation. Yeah, you got the mechanism, but you, you got the evidence that you need the mechanism to happen. Juscelino Colares, international law expert at uh, Case Western. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So yesterday, we were talking about this thing called sleep tourism. Yeah, yeah. And then we had big breaking news, so we stopped talking about sleep tourism. And and then the day ended and we went to sleep. Yeah, because we were very tired. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But now we're going to uh, kind of catch up to where we were. Okay, so hotels uh, are catering to this. They're setting up sleep-enhancing amenities in rooms. Back with us now is Dr. Rebecca Robbins, sleep researcher at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital. She's co-author of the book Sleep for Success. Uh, Welcome back. It's kind of like deja vu, isn't it? Uh, totally. <laughs> nice to be back with you. Okay, so let's see. Uh, rather than pick up where we left off, let's just briefly recap. What exactly is a a kind of sleep vacation or sleep tourism? So what I think this is referring to is, and it's a new trend, um, although it's kind of ironic because a hotel, of course, after all, is a place to sleep. And so it's kind of um, a little bit um, kind of ironic that we're drawing, you know, finally attention to this. Uh, I feel like in prior years, hotels were much more likely to talk about the restaurants and the nightclubs and the other attractions. But um, now with this just seismic shift um, in the kind of population towards health and well-being and sleep, of course, being part of that equation, um, I think there's kind of a like renewed interest in um, not only the gym on site, the healthy food offerings, but now increasingly attention to guest sleep. And that's a a good thing, of course, for all of us as travelers that we could maybe feel rest assured to check in somewhere, um, knowing that the hotel is really, you know, focused on your sleep. But we have published a paper on this. We surveyed 800 regular travelers and we found that um, kind of sadly, only one in three travelers reported being happy with their sleep when they traveled. But those that did report being happy we're much more likely to return to the hotel. So hotels have a, a <laughs> lot of reason back. to make this a priority. <laughs> so <laughs> what are they doing, you know, when I'm when I'm browsing the, the website and deciding where to stay? What are they doing besides being like, well, we have really soft sheets and like a king bed? 
Mm-hmm. Well, let's break because let's break it down into maybe two parts: the kind of brick and mortar of the hotel itself. If you are between hotels and maybe you see one that has something, you know, more attention to sleep, I'd of course recommend going with that one. And the hotel could emphasize the sheets, um, like you said, the bed, the mattresses. Those are kind of you know the foundation of your sleep. The suite itself, if you're in an urban environment, um, a hotel that's really careful will have thought through how many window panes. Uh, two or three will help block city noise. And those are going to be really important if you're in the you know heart of downtown New York, for instance. But then what's what's interesting, and this is kind of the big part of the trend, is there are a lot more services now that are relating to sleep. And those range from uh, maybe uh, kind of turn down offerings. So some hotels are offering um, kind of realizing that the chocolate on the pillow wasn't such a good idea because, of course, chocolate has caffeine that can interrupt our sleep. So hotels are kind of rethinking that and maybe putting um, some aerobotherapy on your night stand or some herbal teas that might help you with sleep. Um, so that might be on the, the kind of the lower end, but there are actually now um, an, int- an increase in sleep retreats. A couple of hotels are offering these so guests can check in and they get a boot camp where they the hotel is maybe partnered with a sleep expert to offer um, kind of evidence-based programs and educational offerings. But then some of those are also partnering with the spa. And so the spa's offering could, you know, have a massage that will help your sleep. Uh, so all of these things are, are really exciting. The good news is a lot of them are evidence-based. They're using, um, you know, evidence-based principles in some of these retreats. Um, and it's kind of a, a really wonderful idea to think about travel that might really restore you. Because so often I feel like we can overindulge when we travel <laughs> yeah, and come yeah. back But I guess I'm wondering, how how has human civilization managed to survive this long uh, without having all of these sort of special amenities to help us sleep? Haven't we done nicely for a really long time? Well, true. I, um, that statistic that I shared from the paper that we published, we surveyed uh, frequent travelers, but we found uh, before this increase in this you know, new trend, this data came out in 20, uh, 2019, and that showed that only you know, one in three travelers were happy with their sleep. That's not a good number. And if you think about it, sleep is such an important part of our you know, typical day. It allows us to wake up, whether you're traveling for business or leisure. It allows you to wake up and enjoy your trip. You'll be in a better mood. You'll better process the information. If you're you know, learning things when you're traveling, you'll better enjoy the experience if you're um, kind of there, again, for leisure or pleasure. So it makes a lot of sense and coupled with the important role that sleep plays in our immune system. Um, now, and you know, with our COVID-19 era, to make sure that we stay healthy on the road and get good sleep is all the more important. But kind of to your question, one of the things that we have known in sleep medicine for a long time is that by and large, we don't generally sleep well outside of our home environment. And so it's actually um, in a really high time that hotels started paying more attention to this. And we have kind of an evolutionary reason for this. If we're outside of our home environment, we're just fundamentally a little bit more in fight or flight mode, scanning our environment for threats. And so we have evidence that parts of the brain are less likely to really unwind when they do when we're at home and in you know more of a, a no a well-known environment where we feel safe all right if you're not sleeping in your cave then a tiger could come and eat you that much easier uh dr rebecca robbins sleep researcher harvard medical school and uh, brigham and women's hospital sleep for success that's the book I don't, i'm trying to remember the last time i was worried about a tiger evolutionarily me. charles yeah i don't know that's what she's uh, talking about uh-huh it, but but you know what it seems to me it that hotels have figured out have figured out more ways to 
How to make more money? Yeah, mm-hmm. because you know they're going to charge you extra for I don't know. We have a bed. It's fourteen ninety five for the aromatherapy spritzer. Yeah, and an, an extra hundred dollars if you want a bed in the room. Otherwise, sleep on the floor. Sleep on the floor. Good luck to you. Remember the cartoon Pinky and the Brain from the nineteen nineties? <laughs> they were genetically enhanced lab mice. Brain was always looking to take over the world because he felt he was smart. And clever. Never quite could do it, though. Got close, but didn't do it. Uh, Maybe these rats at Stanford can, though, because researchers there have transplanted human brain cells into the brains of baby rats, and then they grew and formed connections. With us to talk about this is Dr. Sergio Pasca, senior study author, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford. Actually, he's in Switzerland right now. Doctor, thanks for being here. So I'm sure this is fascinating that this actually worked and how it all worked, but can you first tell us the, the why behind this? Hi, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I, as you were mentioning, I'm a professor of psychiatry, and my interest is really in understanding the biology of psychiatric conditions. And psychiatric conditions are really the largest cause of disability worldwide, and the reality is that we still have a very poor understanding of the biological mechanisms of these conditions. And over the years, we've been building models um, of the human brain in a dish, starting with stem cells that we derive from patients. But we've discovered over time that there are a number of limitations of how complex some of these connections and some of the cells are in a dish. So over the past few years, we've been building this new platform that allows us to put uh, human brain cells that we derive in a dish from patients, but transplant them into the developing rat, where they can mature farther and can integrate with the circuitry of the rat. And that, of course, it's, it's incredibly promising because it allows us now to study these disorders in a much more physiological context. Now, uh, you know that you're going to get people who are going to go, uh, or does this mean that eventually, you know, uh, mice, rats are going to to start, you know, thinking like humans? Well, I mean, the number of cells that we transplant is still small. Um, you know, a fraction of a part of a brain of the rat now contains human cells. We don't remove parts of the rat's brain. We just add human cells that integrate into that circuitry. But overall, this is still a small fraction, Um, just enough so that we can actually, um, you know, mature the cells and then study what the consequences of the mutations that they carry are. Were you surprised it actually worked, that they, they fused and they came together and it's all fine and you can actually see them growing in there? Yeah, I mean, we were surprised because... As you can imagine, I mean, it takes a slightly over a week to make a rat brain during development, but it takes, you know, at least 20 weeks just to make all the neurons in the human cortex. So there's a, there's a big disconnect between the two species. There's almost like a natural barrier um, between the two species when you try to integrate uh, cells. So we were certainly surprised, and that's one of the reasons why we did the transplantation earlier. So in rats, they were just born, where the brain is still slightly you know, uh, developing at that is still plastic and it can allow some of these human cells to integrate. But again, the integration, um, you know, is facing a natural barrier because the two species uh, still developing their own pace. So there's only so much that the cells can actually integrate into the nervous system of a, of a rat. Does the rat behave differently? No, they don't. And we've actually been very carefully studying the rats, first of all, because, you know, they carry human cells, and we wanted to make sure that the rats are not suffering in any way. Um, And we've done extensive testing to make sure that they're not suffering. But we've also looked at them in various behavioral tasks and found no differences between rats that were transplanted 
versus cells that were versus rats that were not transplanted with human cells. So with this, as you you move forward, you can get these uh, human cells that are inside these rats, what, to the point where you can get them bigger and get them more complex, where you can get a better look at at what switches are flipped in there that that could lead to disorders in us and then then go from there? Exactly. So we've, we've known for a while that, you know, human cells, human neurons that we grow in a dish are much smaller than actual human neurons in the brain. And so now that we've discovered that if we transplant them and we grow them into the rat cortex, they grow quite large. I mean, they grow about six times larger uh, than they are in addition, much closer to the actual cells in the brain. And that actually allowed us to discover some defects. So, you know, we've studied a form of autism, a very rare but genetic form of autism, uh, where when we made neurons from patients in a dish and we compared them to control, we didn't really see any differences in the dish. But once we transplanted, uh, control cells grew very large and mature, but patient cells failed to do so. And, and that essentially allowed us to discover a defect associated with disease that you wouldn't see in a dish. And I think that's exactly the power of this platform in allowing us to discover some of these defects associated with disease, some of these biological defects in a physiological context. And there's another, I think, very important application of this platform moving forward, which is for testing drugs. If you think today, you know, discovering any drug, any potential drug for any of these conditions needs to be tested in animals. And sometimes some of these animal models that we have for complex psychiatric disorders don't really, um, you know, mimic the disorder the way we would want. So there are not that many options. Where would you test that drug before you would move into a patient? So in, in, this, in this context, with this new platform, you can actually take these drugs and inject them into the rat and look at the effect on human cells from a specific patient. Uh, that you ultimately want to treat. So I think you can also look at it as a platform for studying the effects of drugs before we would move uh, into patients. That's why he's at Stanford and we are here. That's Dr. (laughs) Sergio Pasca, senior study author, professor of psychiatry, behavioral sciences, Stanford University. Calling from Switzerland today. Doctor, thanks. More in-depth tomorrow.